on this week's episode of Three Rural White Guys, the rural resistance to getting the COVID vaccine. We also talk about D.C. and Puerto Rico statehood. And on our show today is Joe Henderson. He is the showrunner for the hit show Lucifer, as well as a comic book fanatic and comic book creator. We're going to talk about the media's role in political agenda setting. It's going to be a fascinating episode, so let's get going. All right, we are back to being three rural white guys again. Jacob Dodds is back from the Caribbean. Well, he washed up on the shores. They let of me Iowa. back in. They let me back in <laughs> just barely. And can I tell you, he, he's he's sunburnt. As 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 for those of you who don't know, uh, those of us in the Upper Midwest, and I'm assuming Canada too, Callan, uh, our first foray with the sun each year after being inside and in the cold. We don't get nice tans. We get our asses burn off. It's not just the first of the year for Canada. For Canada it's the entire year. <laughs> Whenever they get exposed yeah. to the sun at all. It's just red yeah. lobster is what I look yeah, like. Eventually yeah. we tan sometime in, in you know July or August with enough boat trips to whatever lake is closest to us. But um, in general, our first foray in the sun is, comes with burnt. And uh, and Jacob, I'm looking across the table at him, and his cheeks are rosy red right now. Well, you can't, you can't see my feet, but somehow... There was one day that I may have hit it a little too hard the day before, and so I was kind of taking a, a little bit of a siesta, and I actually purposefully stayed in the shade all day, and I still managed to burn my feet. And the only, <laughs> the only, the only, uh, the only thing I can think of—I mean, I was in the shade literally all day, um, but we were on the beach, and the only thing I can think of is that the sun was reflecting off the sand. Oh, sure. And burned me that way because there I was not in the sun long enough to get burned. Well, Jacob, I must admit I'm disappointed that you weren't truly representing Iowa by wearing socks with your sandals to avoid that situation. <laughs> <laughs> I actually got in trouble. If you, if the, for the listeners at home, if you've ever been to the all-inclusive resorts anywhere in the Caribbean, they usually have dress codes in their, you know, their restaurants, especially at night. Mm-hmm. And I actually got in trouble one night because I wore flip flops. Oh, I, I was, uh, you know, I was wearing a nice polo shirt and long pants, but no, no flip flops. Flip flops going. Side boobs, okay, but, <laughs> but you can't wear flip flops. Get your priorities straight. Good lord, good lord. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually a, a, like a huge point of contention for me. Was that that night I had to get all hot and sweaty walking all the way back up to my room just to be able to have dinner and then. Yeah. Wait, they actually sent you back because you yeah. had flip flops. Yeah, they wouldn't see me. Holy crap! Yeah. Okay. So, but uh, um, along those same lines, COVID was interesting. Yeah, so, tell us about that. I think that it's largely an illusion of safety down there. You know, you go to a restaurant. Sometimes they'd make you use hand sanitizer before you walked in. Sometimes not. Sometimes they'd take your temperature. Sometimes not. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that their tourism industry. I think the resort was only able to operate at forty percent capacity. So, I mean, they're that's their that's their primary industry down there. Right. It's, so. it's interesting because we're, you know, especially here in rural America, we are in this, it almost feels like a denial phase about it all. Like people have just given up here. No one's wearing masks at all. It's becoming this almost, uh, you know, binary situation. Either you do wear masks or you don't wear masks. And in, in rural America, it's flat up. You don't. I was at a, I was at a, one of those service club groups uh, meetings this on Wednesday and I had my mask on. I walked in and I was presenting at it actually. And, the whole room was filled with tables. Everyone sitting at the tables, not socially distancing, no one wearing a mask. And in that case, no one had a test beforehand. It was, and it mm-hmm. was a bunch of people who almost all were Republicans. And I think most of the Democrats and, and other people who are more, uh, 
not being influenced by our, our buddy uh, Fucker Carlson. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, they're they're not going. You know, to that show or to that to that meeting, whereas the ones that are watching, you know, him are are going and. Uh, People just have given up, period, whether or not they've been vaccinated or not. And it's 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 going to prolong this damn pandemic. And we're not going to get back to normal quick enough because of that, because they've just given up. They, they think it's some kind of weird hoaxy thing or something. There's propaganda somehow. We just had new restrictions and not restrictions, but CDC recommendations. Guidelines. Yes, the yeah. guidelines, yeah. Uh, what were they like outdoor? You could be you could uh, be without a mask. Yeah, the big change is that uh, the CDC is now saying it's it's fine to be outside uh, without a mask if you're vaccinated, uh, unless you're in a large group of people. Right. So. so, as a medical professional, Jacob, I'm vaccinated. It's our little public service announcement, um, which means it's a little bit like a mask for me. Like I, I I can still get COVID, but it won't have an impact on me. My body will fight it a lot right. quicker. Right. Right. And we don't have enough data yet, from what I understand, this, to know if I can pass it on to somebody, even if I have it. Right. Is that is that why we still are supposed to wear masks if we have been vaccinated around yes. people who are unvaccinated? Yes. Well, that and it, the vaccines are, I mean, ninety five percent effective. So there is a still five percent chance of severe. I mean, what what they know is it's it's basically a one hundred percent chance that you won't die from that. Oh, that's likely good. be that's hospitalized. Good. Yeah, um, it's kind of like the flu shot. I mean, it's a we we have a crapshoot with the flu shot every year as to whether or not it's going to cover the right strain, and, right? And the the whole purpose of it isn't to prevent you from getting the flu. You know, you hear people all the time say, "Well, I'm not getting a flu shot because the last time I did, I got it." Right. In comparison, I can remember a few years ago we had a particularly nasty strain of the flu that went around, and when people got it, it knocked them on their ass for about four days. Um, I got it that year. Um, and I, I've had the flu shot every year religiously since 2009. Right. And, um, uh, but it was, you know, 24 hours, uh, you know, I laid in bed miserable with a fever and, and then I was fine. And I, and I realized that that's the flu shot did its job in that case. I still get sick, but you know, I wasn't laid up for four days and feeling like crap. And, and, uh, you know, there, there are, there's people having, even if they didn't have a severe case of COVID, they, they have, they have these long-lasting impacts from it. Right. And it, it's also shown to be effective in preventing that. Right. And I get the hesitancy in the sense that there's a lot of things they don't know. I mean, they, they, don't know, they, they can't confirm that in six months we won't have to go get another shot because they, they don't know for sure how long it's going to last. They don't know we if haven't it's gonna, had it for six months yet to even test it, right? They don't know if it's going to work against all these variants that are out there. Um, but I, I guess... I guess my, it's kind of like us booking this vacation. I mean, there were, there were a lot of people that were kind of questioning, well, my God, you know, why would you go to a foreign country right now? And I'm like, because uh, <laughs> I've been on the front lines of this thing for the last 15 months, and I finally got vaccinated. I'll follow all the rules still. I've got no problem with that. Right. But I, I'm ready to go back to normal life. I mean, I, I want to go to concerts and do all the things that everybody else wants to do. So, you know, is it really that that hard to go take the jab and feel like crap for, I mean, you guys right. just experienced that, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and those, I, I get why people say those things, uh, but it's getting more and more difficult to, to get those things done uh, and, and convince people of that because, yeah, so many people have given up on the protocols. Right. I, I've legitimately been shocked by the number of people in the medical community that, that are, are sketchy about this. I mean, I, it, it's really amazed me. People that, that really should know better and should know the science behind it, 
And the, the constant argument I hear is, well, this is, this is new. This is new and untested. No, mRNA, no, M- mRNA vaccines are not new. No, they're not and, new. And we will probably eventually get to where all of our vaccines are mRNA vaccines. Right, right. And thank God we, they weren't new because we used that technology to develop this super, super fast. But, but, but again, I really think some of the – this is what I – I know I've said this before, but I, I don't – everybody at this point knows somebody who's been seriously impacted by COVID, whether they were hospitalized or they died. Right. And, you know, I, I just think back, like, the, the, there's no way this happened in the 40s and 50s when people were dying and being debilitated by polio. Right. That, that – that people said, I, I don't know if I'm going to take that. Yeah. If there were, they were, they were a massive minority and they didn't have the platforms that they have now to spread their propaganda. Yeah. So, so let's, let's go how, there. How much yeah. of this, yeah, how much of this is the media, right? Pumping this stuff out there uh, and, and telling people, conservative media, and telling people lies about vaccines or even, <laughs> even if they're not just outright lies, a lot of it is insinuations and implications and um, trying to suggest that some people say, right? That's the, that's the, right. favorite, the right. favorite phrase on Fox News. Some people say that vaccines, uh, uh, COVID vaccines are going to kill you and cause you to turn gay, right? Like, what? <laughs> well, we had, we had a nice little online argument on one of our posts not that long ago about this guy that was trying to defend Trump as being really pro, he was saying he's really pro-vaccine, really pro-vaccine. You know, and I came up with some, you can go check our Facebook page, you can check it out. I came up with some pretty legit, I thought, like proven things saying, actually, no, he has not been pro-vaccine. Right. Because every single damn time he talks about the vaccine, he, he also side notes a circumstance of, hey, but you're an American, you have the right not to get the vaccine. The fact he's, that he got a vaccine and hid it from everybody. Yes. Yes, yeah. is, is all the evidence you oh, need, and also that he was massive anti-vax prior to running for president, right, and actually president. did all the speculation around autism as well with vaccinations, right. without any freaking data to back it up. Well, right. and, but, and yeah. to go back to my to go back to my trip, to use my trip as an analogy. I mean, you hear these people that have been going on for months about their freedoms being taken away. You know, you can't travel. You got to wear a mask. You can't just. You can't just waltz into Menards and get what you want, or they'll tell you to leave. Wait, wait, wait. You're going to have to explain what Menards is, because I think for most of our <laughs> listeners, they're like, what the f-? It's the Midwest <laughs> version of Lowe's or Home Depot. Home Depot. Yeah, okay, good, good, good. Continue. <laughs> yes, yes, sorry. But uh, uh, Save big money. But, but, but now we're raging against the idea of a vaccine passport. Do you know how much I would have loved if my vaccine card was my vaccine passport right. and it meant that I could walk to the airport without a mask and I could... As if that's new. I could sit on the airplane and not have to, you know, constantly pull my mask down to as I drink my bourbon and coke. Right. You know, uh, I I would have loved to have been able to, 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 to just that be my freedom pass to say... Yeah. But, but we've tied that back again to saying, well, we're... we're, we're we're conditioning our freedom on getting this vaccine. What the, but like that's coming from people that simply don't travel, right? Like I've been to Uganda, Madagascar, Nicaragua, anywhere in Europe. You know what? I have to present my damn yellow fever shot card. I have to per- talk about, I have, I have all this little pack. I have my passport and then I have my visa. And in order to get my visa, I have to prove I got my vaccinations. Well, I couldn't come back to the United States until I showed a negative COVID test. Because we have those regulations, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, just, it's a bullshit argument that it, it, 
people are controlling the narrative, right? There's people out there going at pe- people's most basic instinct, trying to control the narrative. What's that called in political terms? Trying to is it agenda setting? Is that what you'd like to say, Kellen? Yeah, the the idea that the media is going to shape the narrative, right? Agenda setting, right, yeah. right. Dictate how we look at things, drive whether or not we're we're looking at this subject versus another. Yeah, right. And so that that's an issue because they're you're utilizing people's basic fears or anything that can spark conflict, and they're making a big deal out of it as a form of distraction, right? And I'm actually really excited. Our, our interviewee this uh, today, um, our guest today is is Joe Henderson. He's a uh, he's a he's a TV producer, uh, executive producer. You might have heard a show called Lucifer. Um, also, uh, he used to be on White Collar as as a, as a writer and eventual producer there. And he's a comic book writer too. But I, w- I want to talk to him about storytelling. Yeah. You know what? You know we always talk about the liberal Hollywood agenda, right? You know here in rural America. And I want to see if that's a thing. You know, do they really think about that? Is that something they they push? And how much do they think about that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I think you know when it comes to the media. I think the reason that they're they're and we'll see what he has to say about this, but but I think kind of the reason there's been this conservative pushback against it is because you know conservatives are sort of trying to hold on to this white version of America, right? Sure. Like the you know the '50s cornball, the Leave It to Beaver version of America, right? And that's not that's not who we are as a country anymore. Whether we we want to acknowledge or admit that or not, it's just not true, right? And many and, would argue we've never been that way as a country, but we've bubbled ourselves in certain yes. areas that were like that, right? And and I think that it's I think that that when you have that platform that Hollywood does, I think that it's a it's a moral imperative to to show how the to try to show how the world really is. Sure. Yeah, and and you mentioned agenda setting. Let me ask for a second though, before we uh, before we bring Joe on here, let me ask for a second. Why are we spending all this time? In, in contemporary American politics, just just recently, we're, we're talking about things like Dr. Seuss or uh, red meat bands that don't really exist, <laughs> or, right. or or masking kids as a form of child abuse, as as our favorite media personality is on this week. But you know, big things happened this week. There was a bill. Uh, this is really big. A bill to promote DC statehood. It's right. big in in two ways. There's there's the obvious political implications, right? This is why the Republican Party is opposed to it. You you give D.C. statehood, you've just added two Democrats to the Senate. You've just added a Democrat to the House. Right. Right. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. Just in the way the the voting looks in D.C. and and the partisanship, the way it, it falls in D.C., that's what's going to happen. So there's that part of it, right? <clears throat> but the other part of it is just the the fundamental idea of we're a democracy. And one person, one vote, um, we all have uh, the same kind of representation. We all have the same kind of rights. So taxation without representation. Everybody in D.C. has on their license plate. If you go to D.C., that's what's printed on their license plate. No taxation without representation. It's ironic, right? It's ironic. They all drive around and they're taxed without representation. So that was a bill that was that was proposed earlier this week. Was it earlier this week or was it last week? It might have been, been last mid week. last week. Yeah, yeah, it might have been last week. And we're not talking about it. But this agenda setting thing is so important. D.C. statehood and and ex- extension of rights and extension of 
of representation of people who don't currently have representation, that matters. That, that really matters if we want to say to the rest of the world, we are the democracy up on the shining hill. Right? What, what, what was a Reagan quote? He said, we're the city up on the shining hill, or the shining city on the hill. Yeah. I'm yep. confusing yep. it. That sounds right. Um, but at the same time, we're, we're not talking about that. We're also not talking about the fact that there's an island down in the Caribbean that, that Jacob hasn't been to recently, I don't think. That been to Puerto Rico recently? Not recently. Okay. <laughs> nice. But like there are more than 3 million people on that island. Every single one of them is an American citizen. Right. Every single one of them. And I, I was in Puerto Rico early 2020, January 2020. And... During the earthquakes, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah. There were a lot of... There? I don't know if you recall from, the, from, from news coverage, but it was constant. Just earthquake. I, I was woken up, at a shake, literally shaken out of my bed uh, by an earthquake uh, while we were down there. But... Three million Americans lived on there. They are American citizens, and they do not have representation. Yeah. And you go down to Puerto Rico if you've, if you've never been there, and, I mean, it feels like you're walking around in Miami or, or, or any other big city, if you're in San Juan, any other big American city that has an ethnically diverse population. It feels like you're in America. Why are we not talking about this? And, and why, even after the bill was proposed last week, we're still not talking about it. This is fundamental, right? This is fundamental to who we are as Americans is that no taxation without representation idea. This idea that one person, one vote, that everybody matters. And, and when you cast your ballot, you're, you're, it's your civic duty, right? But, but for more than 4 million Americans, if you add up Puerto Rico and, and D.C., that's not a thing. Why well, are I, you not talking about this? And I think it becomes glaringly obvious during times of disaster. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, the hurricane, uh, was it Maria? I think it was Maria that really ripped apart Puerto yeah. Rico. When, when Hurricane Maria decimated that island, I mean, did FEMA respond to that? Yes. But did they respond to it with the sort of full-throated response that they do in the Gulf states? Absolutely not. No. Um, and, and I think what we saw on January 6th is another prime example in D.C. I mean, the, the delay in, in activating the National Guard because they basically have, you know, 2080 agreements with uh, Maryland and Virginia for National Guard coverage, but it requires presidential approval, right. which is great <laughs> if you're not trying to incite a insurrection. So, so question for you. It looks like, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're, you're mentioning millions of people. I see D.C. is having 705,000 people. Yep. Does that sound right? That's, yep. That's yep. not the most recent census. We Some, just had new census data yeah. come out. I'm looking at something different. Something right? like 3.2 mil in, to 3.2 in Puerto Rico. In Puerto Rico is yeah. where the big numbers. Okay. Yeah. So just, just for reference, by the way, everyone. So D.C. has 705,000 people who have no, who are being taxed without representation, right? Right. That's basically the situation. Vermont has 623,000 people. Wyoming has 578,000 people. How many of the Dakotas have? And uh, they're more than that, actually. They're a little uh, bit higher. A little bit higher, but they're all in that same range. They're under a million right. people. Right. And and then we get into Puerto Rico. Three million. Yeah. That's, I, I think it's that's more than the state of Iowa, isn't it? Yeah. It is the We have 3.2. Yeah. 3. So 2. just I'm going to run it down. Nevada, Arkansas, Mississippi, Kansas, New Mexico, Nebraska, West Virginia, Idaho, Hawaii, New Hampshire, Maine, Montana, Rhode Island, Delaware, South Dakota, North Dakota, Alaska, Vermont, and Wyoming. All smaller in terms of population than Puerto Rico. Yeah. These are American citizens. They're all American citizens. It's And they have voted as a... What do you call it? As a, a U.S. territory, to 
to do statehood. Repeatedly. Non-binding yeah. referendums that have yeah. passed at wide margins. Right. These are American citizens that want to be a state. Like, how hard is it, but simply because... Republicans don't want to lose more control in the Senate. Is you, that is that the only reason we're not doing it? Puerto Rico's less blue and red or white and black as as DC is, but you're almost certainly again adding two Democrats to the Senate and probably four or five Democrats to the House. Right. It, Wait, it depends. There's there there are areas in Puerto Rico that I are mean, definitely you, not you, liberal. You can't get people to you can't get people to fall in line with your party by going down and tossing out some paper towels. <laughs> <or>? <laughs> I guess it doesn't work like that. Yeah, just you go down and completely uh, uh, disrespect the entire the entire island, right? Yeah. It's mind-numbing to me how many American citizens, at least especially in rural areas, uh, don't realize that Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens. Right. Unreal. They, they're American citizens. Yes. Yeah. Kellen, you actually wrote a post about, about D.C. statehood and maybe even mm -hmm. Puerto Rico statehood uh, on our blog. People can check that out at threerollwhiteguys.com. Obviously, you have your basics of representation with, you know, without you know, taxation, without representation. Why do you, as a, as a political science expert, uh, think that they should be, that we should take two more, Puerto Rico and D.C.? Is this, like, why are we adding more stars to the flag? Isn't that a pain in the ass? Sure. <laughs> but yeah, it is. But but at the end of the day, it's normative. It's 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 the idea that that we are a democracy, and we are a democracy in which not all of our citizens are afforded the same rights, and not all of our citizens are allowed to vote. Not not, not we could go on about felon voting rights and uh, having your rights stripped once you're convicted of a felony. We could talk about all sorts of things like that. But at the end of the day, these are not felons. These are American citizens. And they're not allowed to vote for any other reason other than the fact of where they were born. By not allowed to vote, you mean they're not allowed to have voting representation Sorry. in Congress. That's right. They do vote. Uh, but what they vote for is not representation in the U.S. federal government. Right. In the sense that their representatives go and have a vote that matters on whether or not legislation passes. Which, let's be clear, too, they don't have senators even sitting there. They have House almost symbolic members of the house right? right they can talk they can they give their perspective on the house floor but they can't vote but they do not have senators you would think that the republicans the the tea party people that they they've grown out of uh, in the last decade would that would be a huge issue you know within the i mean obviously with the the lack of the partisanship there with the chance they're going to partisanship that gets right away. but we would think the core message is there that people should be able to get a vote, right? Mike, this all stems from from partisanship and polarization, and ultimately you have to change that. And to change that, you have to change the way we hold elections. And to do that, you have to switch to ranked choice voting. And I will also add it also stems from racism when it comes to Puerto Yep, Rico. there's a little bit of racism in there, too, because you're talking about a whole lot of black and brown people, both in D.C. and Puerto Rico. Right. Yeah, the, right. Uh, the just, I mean, obviously Puerto Rico is Puerto Rico, um, but, uh, I mean... You have white Hispanics, but I mean, you have a yeah. virtually a 100% Hispanic population there. Yeah, in um, Puerto Rico. Up yeah. through the 1970s, DC was 70% African American. It's mm -hmm. now about 30%, largely due to gentrification. Mm -hmm. um, but it is voted, uh, it is always voted for the Democrat sure. uh, it, for presidential elections. As, as most large urban areas do. Right. Yeah. But it's also important to note uh, D.C. did not even have home rule until 1973. And so for the listeners at home, um, 
pulling out my public administration degree here. Mm-hmm. Home rule means that you have a, a you know a, mayor, a local form of government. You have a mayor and a city council, or or you know some sort of a locally elected commission. Right. The Congress, the U.S. Congress, dictated what happened in D.C. until home rule was implemented. Yeah. Wow. We collectively, as Americans, have been having this fight over D.C. statehood for a long time. This isn't the first time. Sure. There was there was actually a retrocession that occurred back in the 1870s. Really? Yeah. Wow. I mean, so the original intention of DC was to literally be not a residential place. The uh, founders didn't picture a, a urban metropolis that has grown. It was expected that the only people that would reside in Washington DC were people directly associated with operation of the federal government. Right. right. But and the founders did also didn't think that. Black people should be able to vote and women should be able to vote right. either. Yep. Here or are, people right? who don't own property. Right, right. And it, it all comes back down to agenda setting, right? It's it's what do we choose to focus on? What's what's uh what do our politicians choose to focus on? What does what does the media choose to focus on? How do they engage the public or distract the public? Right after the break, we're gonna we're gonna talk with, with Joe Henderson. Um big for Iowa, a big, big Hollywood guy, right? It's mm-hmm. it's rare we get someone like him going and 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 really making it and doing well in a place like Hollywood. Um, how do we get people like Joe to move back? You know, I want to ask him that. You know, and, and talk through that. You know, we saw what happened in Atlanta, and and in in Georgia, they basically created the entire movie industry there. I wish they'd do something like that here in Iowa. Well, you guys weren't here then. But uh, back in 07, I believe it was, the legislature enacted film tax credits in Iowa for production. Wait, we've had those in Iowa? We Seriously? have. We did. Yes. What, why, why past tense? Because um, that seems like that was before Georgia then. Well, we made it a couple of years. We had some, we had some major productions going on. Um, and uh, come to find out, the, the, the guy that was running the uh, state film office was kind of doing some dealings under the table. Money was being spent inappropriately and uh, the governor at the time chad culver really didn't have much choice but to pretty much shut the whole thing down and there's been a couple of of revived attempts over the years to try and bring it back with more controls in place but i think largely we've missed the bus on that i mean we were we were the cheapest state to produce films in because of those tax credits. Are we, are you telling we were me number one in the country we could have had iron man like zooming through downtown des moines basically had yeah. we kept it going, yeah, we could have become uh, we could have become British Columbia. That's where that's where a lot of uh, a lot of rural stuffs being filmed now is in in British Columbia, right? Uh, because of the and and also Georgia, yeah. But uh, yeah, we could have there could have been uh, um, there could have been sound stages in Des Moines instead of everybody working in the in- insurance industry. We we could have had a a film industry potentially in Des Moines or Cedar Rapids. There was. There were a lot of people that that actually did have a fairly significant impact on the economy because there were a lot of people relocating back here for those jobs. Right. And uh, they were just gone like that overnight. And hey, and we're equal opportunity criticizers here. Uh, That was under the Culver administration, which was a Democrat Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, in terms of lack of oversight, proper oversight to keep them from. You know, it sounds like fraud, basically. So let, let's do that. When 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 we get Joe on after the break here, let's talk about how our government our state government incentivizes and disincentivizes certain industries how they've changed industries based on policy because policy does matter so uh i can't tell you how excited we are about our guests here after the break um we'll uh, we'll see you on the other side 
Each week on Three Rural White Guys, we highlight a charity or nonprofit that's doing great work to make the world a better place. We're doing things a little differently this week because our charity, our nonprofit, is actually a public entity. It's an organization that is trying to help make the world a better place through vaccinations. It's your local public health office. It might be your county, your city public health office, but they have been working tirelessly for over a year figuring out how to get our people healthy, how to eventually get shots in arms to get to herd immunity so we can all get back to a new world that's waiting out there for us. So reach out to them. Tell them thank you. Drop a gift card by or a gift card gift basket by their offices if you live in a rural community. We obviously, they're very busy, so respect that. But also let them know they're valued and that you really appreciate all the work that they've been doing in their offices over the last year to protect you and to protect our communities. So that's it. Reach out to them, say hi, tell them that you care, and tell them how much you appreciate them. Welcome back to Three Rural White Guys. You know, we talk a lot about the great rural brain drain in rural America, where we lose these incredibly talented people uh, to the coast, to bigger cities. But sometimes, just sometimes, that's probably a good thing because their talents need to be where they're best used. Today, we have one of those people, somebody who had a dream, made it really, really big out on the West Coast, especially by Iowa standards. Uh, his name is Joe Henderson. You may know him from the show Lucifer, where he is a producer. Oh, I'm sorry, a showrunner, correct, Joe, of, of the show Lucifer? Uh, Co-showrunner, executive producer. Thank you very much. Yes. Nice. Uh, but uh, you can call me whatever. Okay, fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Uh, I got to know some of his stuff um, watching White Collar. My, my mom, when she was going through cancer treatment, uh, we'd watch White Collar together and talk, talk you know, to each other after the show. Little did I know at the time that, that, that Joe was helping produce that. Were you, were you writing on the show at the time, or what were you doing at that point? Wow. Uh, yeah, I was I was writing on it uh, all. I, I write, wrote on the entire series, and I worked my way up there. I started. It was my first job. I started as a staff writer, and then I worked up to co uh, co EP co executive producer uh, by the end. So it's nice. where I learned uh, pretty much how to produce TV. Nice. And, and before we get into politics, the other big thing that I think a lot of our at least our geeky listeners will like, and I definitely do, is is you're a comic book writer. Tell us about that yeah. a little bit. Yeah, I mean, like I'm a, I'm a long term comic book fan. I uh, you know used to I I still collect. I used to collect all the time, and uh, I'd always wanted to write comics. And it's weird because you know I I'm doing uh, uh, thankfully very well in TV, but breaking into comics was kind of tricky and kind of hard. And so I just decided to take a swing and know that I might lose a whole bunch of money trying to basically self uh, fund my own comic but i had a story i really wanted to tell it ended up being the comic skyward which somehow we were lucky enough to be nominated for an eisner which is sort of the uh comic book equivalent of the oscars uh, we didn't win nice. it but we got nominated which nice. is almost almost the same thing some people <laughs> might say uh hopefully it helped with sales got right? a new... yeah of course and then uh i have a comic called shadecraft which actually uh the second issue came out right now as we're recording, so it's out in stores now, and it's with the same creative team from Skyward, and it's just, it's fun. I love writing comics. I love being able to just tell stories in different formats, in TV, in comics. I'm writing some movies that'll probably never get made, so, you know, like a little bit of everything. That is fantastic. 
And just to be just to be clear, uh, Joe grew up in a, in a town called Ankeny, Iowa. At the time, Ankeny was probably, for most most definitions, considered a rural town by metro standards. Maybe what thirty, forty thousand people, or how big was Ankeny at the time you were growing up there? Oh man, I have no idea. Probably yeah. that sounds right. Yeah, but northern I... suburb. Now it really is a massive suburb of Des Moines, but at the time it was this really it was its own little community just the north of Des Moines. Um, it's changed a lot. Yeah, it's got two high schools now, so I assume it's gotten much much bigger. Right. Right. Nice. So we wanted to bring you on, uh, Joe, for, for a couple big reasons. Um, one is because you have that, we're trying to create a bridge uh, between urban and rural, helping sort of our urban listeners understand the rural perspective a little bit, helping our rural listeners understand the urban perspective a little bit. And, and you've had both. You know, you grew up here in Iowa, you went to the University of Iowa, but now you live in the second largest city in the country, in, in LA, uh, right? I, I did the game. Yeah, right, second. Right? Yep. Yeah. And, um, and so you've seen a little of everything. Um, so we want to just get your perspective on stuff. Talk about a little about politics. I think Kellen had a big topic he wanted to run by you. Do you want to introduce that topic? Yeah. Um, one, one thing I've been interested in, uh, I'm, my background's in political science, and one, one thing I've been interested in um, kind of here and there is this idea of agenda setting in the media um, mm. and, and gatekeeping. These are kind of two distinct but very related, interrelated ideas. Um, the idea of... of of agenda setting is essentially that there are institutions or people or, or um, figures in the media that are going to drive the conversation a certain way. So, you know, is it more important that we cover, you know, potential World War III in Eastern Ukraine or Kim Kardashian's newest tweet or whatever, right? So that's all about agenda setting. Um, and then, yep. and then gatekeeping is very closely related. And I was just reading this, uh, this piece in this uh, part of this book here while we were sitting here before, before you came on. Um, and ultimately, the, the way that this author describes gatekeeping is the process of culling and crafting countless bits of information into the limited number of messages that reach people each day. And it's the center of the media's role in modern public life. That was a, a topic that I thought uh, maybe we could cover is just this idea of media's role in shaping and forming uh, uh, what we talk about. Right. Right. And even beyond traditional news media. But let's go into to Lucifer, into white collar, into, uh, you know, we hear it in rural areas all the time. We hear, well, there's a the liberal Hollywood agenda. And this is similar to what they're talking about. And so you're, you're there. You're in the middle of it. Is there a liberal yeah. Hollywood agenda? And if there is, is, is it a bad thing? Like, where, where are we going with that? So what are your thoughts on that to start with? Well, first of all, I wanted to talk about Rudy Giuliani's place getting raided. Yes, oh, yes. That was on our list. There. That's on the list. That was on our list. <laughs> so let's talk about but that. But this is a much better topic and a much more relevant topic, so fine. But I just want to say this morning was fun for that reason alone. Yep. But, nice, nice. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of us in Hollywood um, see a responsibility in the stories we tell. And oftentimes there's also a gut check in whether or not we are fulfilling the responsibilities. Like, I think this summer really gut-checked a lot of us. I think a lot of us got hit hard by um, the stories we were telling and whether or not we have responsibility to say more. Uh, I very much came from the philosophy. I do a show called Lucifer about the devil-solving crimes in Los Angeles. It is quite <laughs> possibly the most absurd concept that has ever been said aloud. Uh, and yet... At the same time, what we do is we show um, a, a, a team of police and the devil yep. <laughs> working together uh, and at times bending the rules and breaking the rules before the greater good. And 
to a certain extent, our show is what has now been termed copaganda, and which I see. It's like, well, uh, we show the cops as sometimes bending the rules, sometimes breaking them, but they're always well-intentioned. They're always doing it for right, right reasons. And if you look at the storytelling that Hollywood has done over the last 20, 30 years when it comes to police procedurals, there is a certain amount of infallibility that we lend to our police. Uh, and by the way, I've worked with police consultants. I have a number of friends who are detectives. Um, but at the same time, we saw, I think, some of the ramifications for the storytelling we've done come to life this summer. And then just, I think it forced us to look at the greater picture of what we've done. And so for us on Lucifer, going into our sixth and final season, we had a long conversation of, okay, we've done five seasons of this show. We're very proud of it. We're very proud of the storytelling, but have we been avoiding dealing with things that maybe we should, especially in a final season, especially when there's no consequences to doing so uh, beyond just whether or not the story is worthwhile and whether or not our fans will enjoy it and whether or not we can earn that story. So there's, I think, I think there's a lot of good, looking inward about how we tackle race, uh, police, um, gender on our shows that we're constantly grappling with. And and more than ever, I think, in the last couple of years, and I think in a really good, important way. Um, so that's a, a long way of answering, I guess, a very simple question of, of, is there a liberal agenda of sorts in Hollywood? I think there's a very moral agenda that we're all in various degrees trying to embrace and at times failing and at times succeeding and trying to just figure out the best way to do it. Um, I feel like I have succeeded and failed many times. I look back at some of my work and I wince because I'm like, could have handled that differently. I wish I'd uh, thought about things a little differently. I wish my eyes had been more open. And the best thing you can do is just keep moving forward and, and keep trying to uh, deliver the message that you feel um, people either want to hear or need to hear. Yeah, we, we kind of had a little bit of that introspection on this show too, um, kind of thinking about th that last thing you just said, what people want to hear, what we think they want to hear, and then what do they need to hear? There's Those are often uh, not the same thing, but I, I have to mention, maybe this isn't, this is less Hollywood, more Toronto, uh, but my my favorite show of all time, Shit's Creek. They they were they did actually they weren't just nominated. They did win nine Emmys and swept Ooh. Emmys in the first time in TV <laughs> Not history. A competition, but yeah. they literally won. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I they they had they made a documentary about the show and and in the final season. It's if you haven't watched it, it's it's incredible. But they they wrote. Yeah. I think they said they wrote the entire all six seasons ahead of time, and then had a long discussion, you know, because it, it gained popularity really in season four, five, and six, not so much one, and one, two, and three. And, and they made the decision, no, we, we have to end this because the story, we've developed these characters, we, we set out to, to end this after six, six seasons. But one thing that really stood out to me from the discussion that they had, and, the, and you're speaking right to this, Joe, is, is they said, we wanted to show a gay couple in a way that doesn't have some sort of tragedy around it. It was just two gay people living their life, right? With all the other stuff that's going on in the show too, but, but a big part of that, that show line, that, or the storyline in that show is, is the, the relationship between David Rose and, and Patrick. Um, I don't remember Patrick's name, last name in that show. Anyway, um, <clears throat> but it, that was, I thought, really powerful to me. It's every other, 
I, I, I shouldn't say every other, but a lot of other shows or movies that you see that are portraying the LGBTQ plus community does so in a way that of revolves around tragedy. Uh, it's either they have to struggle coming out or struggle getting their families and loved ones to, to accept them or the the day-to-day -day interaction with the society around them. There's always some sort of tragedy and negativity. And it was one of the first, maybe the first, one of the first shows that didn't do that. And it was just yeah. gay people Positive. being yeah. people. They're just people. You know, and it's interesting. And and Joe, I'm gonna I'm gonna drop something on all your friends if they listen to this episode. Is Joe was in a church choir in college. Um, just if they didn't know that, you know now. Um, I don't know if you're hiding that. I can delete it if you need me to out of the episode there, Joe. Oh, no, no. But Spread that. I tell everyone. Catholic <laughs> church choir. Um, it was a fun one, but th the reason I bring that up is is, is after, that's how I met Joe, and I ended up, ended up being a lobbyist for the Catholic church for about four years in Des Moines uh, at the Capitol there, and obviously gay marriage is a huge issue that the Catholic church works on. And we, We're going to have an episode on that someday, yeah. on, on yeah. religion and politics and so on. But I heard constantly from bishops and priests that there, there's the Hollywood gay agenda and they're pushing this, normalizing it. And we got to work against that. And, and we just don't have that kind of power aside from the pulpit to be able to to get away from that. And I see that as one you just described, one of those positive uses a moral use of, of your platform as, as a producer, as a writer, as a showrunner. Uh, to push that narrative because it needed to be done. There was people suffering as a result of policy and a result of, of, of discrimination against the LGBTQ plus community. And so that was a good use of it. And, and Schitt's Creek is a perfect example of that. Well, I mean, listen, when I, when I was in college, when I was in the Newman Singers, I didn't believe in gay marriage. I didn't, I didn't think, I thought a uh, marriage was between a man and a woman. And I remember talking to some friends and them like looking at me like, no, no, it's, it, it, it can be the other way. And, and I, and it like hit me because I was like, I don't really believe this. I've just been told this. Right. And it was actually one of the things that I loved the experience of the Newman Singers. I loved my experience, the that Catholic church in particular. But it was one of the things that made me from a Catholic to a lapsed Catholic. Yep. Um, which is the idea that we're just we're we're judging these people just because of their love. And that sucks. And that is unfortunate. And if I can tell stories about love and make that a casual part of them, then that's important. If other people can feel seen and heard out in the world um, and feel like their lives are normal, similar to what they did with David Rose and Patrick, who his last name does not exist, um, <laughs> that's important. That is good. That is a powerful thing to do, and it's an important thing to do, and it's good. It's like capital G good in the way that... Uh, that I wish the Catholic Church would embrace. Yeah, yeah. But that is a whole other conversation. Yeah, well, for sure. <laughs> we may bring you back for that one. We'll see. We'll see. I love it. I'll dive in. Nice, nice. Brewer. Uh, That's right. It's Brewer. It's Patrick Brewer? Yep, yep. Oh, we do have it. We do have it. Yep, we found night. it. Nice. <laughs> well, when it speaks to just the, the storytelling, like, uh, you, you've got um, you've got the propaganda. You've got race. Like, there was early on when we were doing Lucifer, I approached it from a very simple concept, which is um, all the angels look different, um, but none of them notice it because they're so evolved. And I think a lot of writers in Hollywood ignored race because to us, if you ignore race, then we're showing how evolved we are. And we're showing that race doesn't matter. 
And I had some conversations with a number of writers and a number of the cast who were like, that's great, but like by skipping it over, we're also just kind of like dodging something that's kind of hard to talk about, but important to talk about. And it's, you think you're being evolved, but you're kind of being a coward. And I had to grapple with that a little bit. And uh, that actually is what resulted in season four, a couple of years ago, we did an episode uh, focusing on uh, D.B. Woodside's character, uh, Amenadiel, who's a black angel, but who doesn't understand why he's treated differently because he's from heaven and he's never had to face racism, really. And that a lot of that came from talking to D.B. Woodside about his experiences and the storytelling that he wanted to tell and listening to him and having that conversation. And I'm so happy we did because we've dug into it even more since then. And then after the George Floyd uh, uh, murder over the summer, it's a story that we're going back to again because, dear Lord, it's as important as ever. But those are the things where you think you're so evolved. I think I thought I was so evolved. I'm constantly learning just how little I am. But it's important to acknowledge that and embrace it and try to learn. Yeah. Fantastic. So dealer's choice for Joe. We could talk Rudy Giuliani and the feds kicking in his door this morning or our favorite media figure, Tucker Carlson. Either way. Do you have a preference? That guy's the fucking worst. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep, yep. Correct. Uh, Yes. That is a correct assessment. Everyone you guys want to dive into, they're they're both just uh, the most depressing meals ever. Actually, let's do Tucker first because he is setting an agenda. Yes. I mean, he literally is putting out propaganda that's incorrect and trying to to yeah. change a narrative, right? So let's let's go there. What what do we yeah. got with Tucker yeah. this week? I mean, he he uh this week tells tells people on a show that if you see kids wearing masks that you need to treat it as if you're watching child abuse, right? So what do people do when they see a parent abusing a child? I don't I don't know. Call social services, the police, whoever it may be. Right. Um but essentially equating, you know, having your child wearing a mask to uh, beating your child, right? So there's that, and then the other part, the other part that really got me this week was uh, the red meat thing. Oh yes, that was fun. Did yeah. you hear about this one, Joe? The red meat yeah. thing. Oh yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. The, the the disinformation that that I feel like I feel like the challenge right now is the right has a disinformation campaign, and the left doesn't. Well, the left has its own issues with disinformation, but it doesn't have an active agenda and an active outlet or multiple active outlets for it in the way that the right does and be the challenge is just the the dis disinformation deluge you know like you can get the red meat story out there you can be correcting that while you're correcting that you've got kamala harris's uh book story the, yeah, and the, the hand, false story the about welcome her package book being given to yeah, <laughs> yeah so you're just like <laughs> they light 10 things on fire. And even if you put nine of them out, one of them gets through and people hear that. And it's also, it's, it's, I feel like Trump has forever changed the way, especially Republican politics works, which is if you light enough things on fire, they can't put them all out. And that is a really depressing way to approach politics. And especially with Facebook and with uh, just all of the social media uh, avenues, it seems like a forest fire that we are have a single hose for. See, and 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 while the Republicans they're still going on about this red meat thing that isn't real, 
right? right? The idea is that Biden is supposed to limit us all to four pounds of meat a year. Or burgers would be gone by the 4th. Right, uh, yes. Burgers by the 4th of July. <laughs> but the, 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 the what Joe said there is, you, you light ten, you light ten fires. You put nine of them out, or or you quietly apologize for them, right, and move on to the next thing. But nonetheless, you've accomplished your goal, and your goal was set the agenda and gatekeep. Right. Because now we have to talk about red meat and kids in masks and child abuse rather than talking about the American Families Plan or talking about the infrastructure bill. Right. And and some of them are still talking about Dr. Seuss. Right. Yeah. It's just. Sick. Goal accomplished. But that's the goal, right? It like we're laughing about it and joking about it. That's their that's the point, right? That's the entire point. I thought the the whole concept of Lucifer was really like the whole show was really like way out there, but then you compare that to reality and it actually seems pretty normal, you know? (laughs) (laughs) You know? Well and and I think I think the the trick, right, is you make everything so extreme and so absurd that you have a mixture of plausible deniability of like, oh, you know, come on, we all know we were kidding. It's like with Sidney Powell with oh, yeah. the release, the, the the Kraken, where she's like, oh, you know, everyone has to assume it's a joke. Isn't I think that was Tucker Carlson's defense. His is, lawyer went into a courtroom this. and said that no yeah, reasonable yeah. human would take Tucker Carlson seriously. Tucker Carlson seriously. That's what his lawyer said. That's so depressing, and also it, it's so emblematic of of the the of what we're having to struggle with and what we have to fight somehow. Right. So, what's the story this last week with Rudy Giuliani? Then the uh, FBI served uh, search warrants on both his private residence and his office. So, Any particular reason so Hunter why? Biden's having a great day today. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Did they find his laptop? Though? Yeah, that, that's the question. Well, the, the uh, I'll be honest. There, there really hasn't. They haven't said much about it. Which that's which, probably not when, good for Giuliani. When you look at at conservative media, they're saying, "Well, of course, you know, they they haven't." Like, I don't know if they thought they'd go in there and he'd be dumb enough to just have a smoking gun sitting around and that'd be the end of it and it'd blow the whole thing open. I mean, do we not realize how criminal investigations work on the right? I don't know. Wasn't he the one that had the quote? Uh, uh, only criminals hide evidence. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Well, and, and going back to your point, Joe, he was in the room on half of those court cases uh, after the election as well. You know, similar to, to Sidney Powell. And um, but, so here's yeah. a question I have on that note. Then, so you're, you're in LA, and and one of the first things you brought up to us was Rudy Giuliani. What I hear in rural Iowa is, what about John Kerry? It's the, the what aboutism stuff. Have you all heard about Johnny? All no. the news is saying yeah. John's in the news right now and saying that. He leaked information to the Iranians, and they know this because there's a recorded phone call from an Iranian official to an economist, I guess. By the way, neither one's an ally. John Kerry was not on the recording. It's just a guy saying he heard from John Kerry about information that was publicly available for the last four years, but we don't know when the recording took place. So this seems pretty obvious that they are holding on to this recording to drop at the right time. Giuliani gets served with a warrant. The president goes and speaks in front of Congress about new plans. And, oh, here's an article we're going to drop randomly in the middle of all this with no no timeline connected to it about John Kerry. It's agenda setting. Yeah, the, the whataboutism, I think, is the real challenge. The, it's one of the reasons that I've really stopped debating friends from Iowa on Facebook 
because if you come over the point, they just dodge it and move to something else. And you're like, let's talk about this point over here until, but we got to talk about this. And they just never do because the truth is they can't because there's nothing to say about it. So I'm just going to distract you with this shiny object over here. Right. And like, listen, both sides have issues. Both sides have flawed people, but one side has a, just a, a, an agenda that I find um, depressing, to say the least. So that's interesting, though. You say it's it's hard. It really is hard to talk to people from rural areas, um, especially around here, if they're in that camp, the the like still on board with the Republican Party after everything that's happened in the last five years, still clinging on to that, still clinging on to Trump. They just they dodge, they distract. That that begs the question: that is it pointless? Like, are we wasting our time trying to to reach out to those folks? Is it? I I, I was just watching uh, watching the news, uh, some program a minute ago before I, before I came over here, and somebody did did make that point and said you can't argue with crazy people like the rational, reasonable people in society who re recognize this crap for what it is. We just all need to move along with life, but. We, we did that, right, five, ten years ago when, when the Tea Party was doing their thing and talking about how Michelle was actually a man and Obama was gay. And you're just like, well, this stuff that they come up with, and, and we just ignored them, right? And they were in their corners and talking amongst themselves, and nobody paid them any attention. And that brought us Trump. And then that ultimately gets us back into the whole real brain drain thing that we've been discussing as a theme as a whole, when you have that culture, you have people that are countering things that way without logic with, with what about isms, how do you, how do you actually keep people that are talented in their communities when, when they are logical, when they do think through facts and when they, they see through some of the bull crap, um, how, how do you keep talent here when that's going on constantly? So I want to move into what would it take to get a Joe Henderson back to Iowa? What keeps people like Joe, who are these talented professionals, from staying here or moving back, you know, I mean, freaking Atlanta has showrunners, right? And not just not just Hollywood producers, right? But people who say, you know, I took a swing to try and break into comics, or I took a swing and I might have lost a bunch of money, but you know what, I did it anyway. Those that type of mindset, people with that kind of attitude who say, mm -hmm. you know what, I want to start a business or I want to be an entrepreneur and I have this right. dream and this idea and I'm going to go do it, damn it. How do we get those people? So how do we get swingers well, in the Iowa? Is why that what you're asking? <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, go ahead, Joe. We just threw a crap so load of stuff you, at you. You heard about my 20s, huh? <laughs> it is L.A. after all. No. <laughs> I think that's a great question because, um, I mean, in my case, it's unique. My industry exists in Los Angeles. To be a writer in television, you need to be in L.A. Like, there's the exceptions, but pretty much the writer's rooms are here. Um, this is where uh, you have meetings, you have everything else. Now, era of Zoom, you have a little more flexibility. If you're a feature writer, you can sort of live anywhere. Um, but for me, I pretty much have to be here. Uh, but there's also the simple fact that I'm surrounded by, you know, more like-minded people. Uh, and but at the same time, like I mean, Ankeny, when I, I mean, I remember being fairly liberal. Iowa City was very liberal. Uh, I felt very comfortable there, but I, at the same time, I don't know. I, even if like, well, let me put it this way it, to the Atlanta question, like, yes, there's a lot of production in Atlanta, but a lot of it's money too. It's like, well, uh, Atlanta offers 
um, the tax rebates that Iowa had for a little bit but have gone away. And for one thing, very simply, Hollywood follows the money. If it's cheaper to shoot somewhere, they'll shoot somewhere. And Atlanta, I think, very smartly built up tax incentives as well as stage structure. They built infrastructure to welcome production, to welcome those things. And I do think that is one of the things that helps turn Georgia, if not blue, purple, is bringing all those people there, bringing the money, bringing the jobs, bringing the perspectives, helping uh, just add a little bit more liberalism to a state that was already on its own, I think, growing more and more liberal. Um, I think what Atlanta did so smartly was they built that infrastructure. Similar in Vancouver, you've got multiple incentives. For one, you've got tax rebates, but on top of it, they have a, you have a favorable exchange rate. So you get a two-for-one deal if you shoot up there. So it, those are the challenges of where we go and where we shoot. Sometimes we just need a geography that demands an Iowa or a different place that you can only replicate that, but especially as technology improves, you're more looking for the place where you can make your buck go the furthest. And, you know, Hollywood's a business. It's all a business. And when you're sitting there in front of a budget, what you're looking at is how do I make this money go as far as possible? And right. so that's that's the answer without a solution. Well, I think I think it's it, it definitely hints at other things. Like we, as a movie you know, and, and TV state is probably not going to happen. There's so many, only so many bridges in Madison County you can write about, and there's only so <laughs> many baseball fields that, that dead baseball players will walk out of. But <laughs> other than that, that, I think I just went through the whole movie business for Iowa right yep, there. Right there, done. Um, <laughs> but, but the same concept exists. How do you attract certain industries to your communities, to your state? What kind of incentives can you throw at them? And, it, and the other piece of it, too, is is we're not attracting businesses. We're attracting industry. And that's what you described there, was mm-hmm. attracting an industry. It wasn't specifically MGM Studios or whatever. It was an industry as a whole. So you're not necessarily – you could actually have entrepreneurs there, too. Startups can move there. Independent yeah. writers can move there. All that kind of stuff could happen and, and build up an economy as opposed to just attracting one or two large-scale companies, which is sort of our model right now is – how do we get a Google server farm in a cornfield? You know, that's it doesn't really do a yeah. whole lot for our, you know, keeping money in the state. And I think it is. It's a mixture of incentive and infrastructure. It's, it's a mixture of finding ways to make it a little more undeniable mixed with the idea that it'll also be easy. Like, you know, you can go to Atlanta because they have stages and because they have crews. Well, they didn't have those things, but they incentivized as they built those up. And now the incentives continue. But also, you know, producers who can be there and gaffers and grips and, and talent that can work there. And so it's always building those things out. And I think that is the challenge is if with every industry, how do you attract that talent, home, grow that talent, build that up and then uh, incentivize people to not only come, but stay. Mm-hmm. Love it. Easy. And Jacob, you pointed out, Jacob sent <laughs> yeah, us a, yeah, easy, easy, really easy. Right. You know, and, and yeah. we had a really depressing day today, this morning and, Everyone on our social media profiles were sending around this New York Times article about Burlington, Iowa, which is uh, about oh, five minutes from where you grew up, Jacob, right? And it was all about how the Democrats have essentially just lost Iowa and should they just give up hope about ever getting Iowa back. Uh, it was basically about how uh, a lot of the more blue-collar blue collar counties in Iowa, Des Moines County being one of them, 
um, which is the the neighboring county to where we're broadcasting. And it's from. not Des Moines, Iowa. Yeah. It's just the county name is where yeah, Burlington, yeah, Iowa is the capital. For the out of state listeners, you have to understand that Iowa's weird and that it likes to like name its counties. The city that ha- shares the same name as somewhere else, like two hundred miles away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Des Moines is in the center of the state, and Des Moines County is way down in the southeast corner along the Mississippi River. And it was talking about how uh, Des Moines County had largely been a blue Democrat county because of the fact that it was largely uh, based on manufacturing and industry, so heavily unionized at the time, and that shifted. And it's it, it's done what a lot of other counties in. Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, uh, all across the Midwest have have shifted that direction from being sort of these Democrat strongholds to being strongly red and the reasons for that. And uh, it it was very much contrasted by a similar article which talked about uh, how people are fleeing blue states in record numbers. Uh, California being one of the biggest ones citing the high cost of living, um, the, the taxes, and then like the ultra liberal politics that people are fed up with. Where are they going then? Because they're not coming to Iowa, obviously. And in that particular, I article, hope they do. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> they're not though, unfortunately. Um, they're they're going to places like Kentucky and Missouri. Right. Far right strongholds. Right. And, I know Texas and, too. When I was there, it was a big California destination too. And a lot of it is because of the, I mean, they're fleeing the cost of living, right? So mm-hmm. you know when yeah. you can buy. 600 feet of riverfront property on 40 acres for the same amount of money that a, you know, a small ranch house in Merced, California costs. That's, that's easy math to do. Right. Um, Oh yeah. I mean like, listen, I go on Zillow and I look up like a house for, you know, like for a, a fraction of what I have to pay a month. And I'm like, oh, that's a mansion. That's amazing. And I'm like, you know, it's like, dear Lord, like the cost of living in LA, like, you know, I mean, you can buy a nice two-bedroom house for the same cost of a mansion in Kentucky. Like, it's insane. It's right. crazy, but uh, that is the trick. And, yeah, I, I got to say, like, one of the things that, I mean, I was really sad to see just how red Iowa went in uh, in the last election. But also, most of my friends have left. Like, most of the people I know who lived in Iowa did flee. And that's one of the reasons why, Mike, when I when I saw you post about this podcast, started listening to it, 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 it filled me with a little bit of hope or at least a sense of perspective mixed with hope because it is, I think the trick is how do you get people to come back? How do you get people to fight in their home state? I say this is a guy who will probably live in LA uh, for the rest of his life because this is where my, my industry is. But at the same time, like I do love the idea of trying to figure out a way to, um, to incentivize people or encourage them to go back and fight local politics and fight for uh, the the causes that will actually help the people in our in our homes, be them present or former. Um, it's important and it's a little scary. Mm-hmm. It's definitely scary. Yeah, it's it's been a little bit. I mean, depressing is the right word. I think mm-hmm. for me, the last couple of days reading that article in the New York Times, talking about the looking at the data. And then how it's going downhill, and then also seeing the policy changes that we put into place here in the last decade, uh, two decades really under almost exclusively uh, Republican control since the Culver administration, I guess, in the mid two thousands. Those policies matter, and it feels like instead of doing similar things what like Georgia did, which you spoke of, 
uh, around the agriculture industry and some other things. It's all been about just flat up deregulation and union busting. And yeah. which might be good for a handful of large scale corporations, but has not been good at all for your average, your average Joe, right? Like it's not good for the middle class. Yeah. Like, I, I come like, we have strong unions uh, out here. The WGA, the Writers Guild that I'm a part of, I think unions protect the workers, and in particular, the legacy of protecting the middle class uh, with unions that has been chipped away year after year is really, really depressing because that shared power, you're seeing the consequences of it going away. The unions really came out of this kind of crap happening back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Industrial revolution. Yeah, yeah. the industrial revolution and where where workers weren't protected and factory owners and and managers were doing whatever they wanted. They they stopped being able to get away with that stuff because of unions. And now that unions are going away, that that kind of stuff's going back. In that article, they said, you know, you could work at that case factory in Burlington where they had 3,500 employees and you could make 70 grand a year, you could have a home, maybe even a lake house up north somewhere, a boat, a couple cars, and one salary could provide for your family. Now those same Mm -hmm. workers in that same factory, there's only 300 of them, and they make 17 bucks an hour. So so I wanna wrap this up in a nice little bow here because I think we've hit something, is Republican leadership has not been good for the middle class or even the, the lower income workers, your classic blue collar workers, and who used to be middle class, who are definitely not middle class mm-hmm. anymore. And, it, and we've been under it for almost two decades now, at least at the state level, and it has been bad. So something else has to keep people voting Republican because their bank accounts are not showing positive growth with Republican leadership. And so we're getting all the way back to our conversation about setting the the... What's the term again? Media agenda? Agenda setting. Agenda setting. Mm-hmm. It, it's yeah. how they're marketing the party, how they're marketing the Democratic Party. The misinformation that's being put out there is is encouraging people to still vote for this shit that is in no way, shape, or form beneficial for their livelihood. I think to that exact point, I think the mistake the Obama years made that so far the Biden years seem to be trying to learn from is Obama didn't take victory laps. Right. He didn't advertise what he gave people. He thought people would find it. And what he didn't realize is that the disinformation machine is strong enough to make sure that either the credit went elsewhere or the credit wasn't felt. And I think one of the things I like about what Biden is doing is he's taking big swings, he's doing big things, and he's trying to get word out about it. And I think that's so important for one to to create big policy, big policy that helps the middle class, and two, let people know, brag about it. Like, listen, I didn't like how Trump bragged about everything he tried to do and mostly just lied about things he hadn't done, but it was successful because people want to hear about achievements. They want to hear about positives. They want to feel like their lives are going to get better, even if they're being lied to. Um, But with Biden's case, in theory, he's going to put in a whole bunch of money that will make their lives better. And we have to make sure that people understand it and understand where it's coming from. Yeah, and that's uh, that's absolutely true, right? Democrats, that's one of my biggest issues with the party is oftentimes there's there's no spine there, right? They, they don't yeah. take those victory laps, right? Democrats never act like they've been there before. They're like, oh my gosh, we just won all these seats. We have total control of the federal government. What do we do? Like they have... They don't slam dunk on the conservatives the way that the conservatives just love to own the libs, right? That's just their whole thing. Is they just they're it's a party of internet trolls, right? Well, it, it, the perfect example is after 
after Biden won, all number of conservatives I know were like, well, okay, but why, you know, you guys are supposed to be nice to us now because you keep saying that we're going to meet in the middle. And I'm like, no, yeah, but <laughs> no, exactly. Yes, but no, no, we're, we're going to finally do what we should have right. done, which is enact our policies. And if you're not going to, cause I feel like the game has always been the Republicans going, meet us in the middle mm-hmm. and then us moving and then them, them not moving right. and then saying, now meet us in the middle again. Right. And then we move and they don't move. And they say, now meet us in the middle again. 100%. And eventually the middle is just them. And, and, and when in, in the Trump years, there was no middle, the Republicans did whatever the hell they wanted. And it didn't matter what the Democrats said. And now that the Democrats are in power, it's, well, the the number one complaint they have with with Biden is he's not passing bipartisan stuff. It's like what what what? Like we just spent yeah. four years doing that, and now you know elections have consequences. You lost everything, and now it's our turn. And it's our chance to show what true progressive policies can do for the middle class, yeah. for the people. How government does not have to be a four letter word. Right. If run correctly and run well and run with the people in mind. And, but the way to do that is not to compromise like they did in the Obama years, but instead to just go forward and show what we can do. And I mean, I'm going to throw in my optimism here that it's probably unwarranted, but I think if you do that, if they take big swings, if they are unafraid and just decide to go with their own, people will feel it in their pocketbooks. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that might make a difference. And I'm probably wildly wrong, but I'm going to be optimistic. Well, and, and so here, here's the thing. And you just talked about, you know, bragging, right? The vast majority of people in rural America are, are listening to Fox News. We have a responsibility. And this is another call to action to our listeners in rural America. You know, Joe just gave us some great examples about storytelling and the importance of storytelling and using your platforms that you do have to live out your morals and your values and your ethics in in a way that gets to other people, right? And so in your communities around the country, you have media outlets to use. Tell the story, brag, go to your local party at your county level and get them to actually publish something. Get people to sponsor ads in the newspaper because if you pay, they'll put it in the newspaper. Get them to do articles that get out into the public because we need to brag. We're about to do a shitload of things for rural America, yep. Democrats. Are. Yep. And Biden's already said it's his plan. So it's up to us, though, to take the victory lap locally, not up to Biden because no one's paying attention to the stuff he's putting out. So we need to pay attention to it and put it out in our local media. Yeah, and the, the, the real irony is he's going to do more for the people who didn't vote for him than the guy did for the people who did. Joe, thank you so much for, for being here. We need to wrap it up, unfortunately. We're way over time, but it's been a fantastic conversation. Seriously, thank you. Any other final thoughts that you might have? Uh, not really. I mean, honestly, I just, one thing I want to say, thanks for the podcast, because I found it helpful and understand the plight of rural hospitals, the rural infrastructure, of all of that stuff. I think what you guys have created is a nice gateway into this for either people who haven't been back in a while or who have never been there or from other rural areas. But I think it's important. One of the simple things is just talking about it, but talking about it in a relatable way. And you guys do great at it. So thank you. 
Well, I, I have to say, uh, I, I'd encourage you to stay out of our comments section. I can see it already, Joe. <laughs> this guy this guy just needs to stick to writing TV shows and comics and stay out of politics. I can see it already. I can see it already. Oh, I, here, let me give them some red meat. The devil solving crimes in Los Angeles, that's the worst idea I've ever heard. <laughs> there you go. That's, that's a freebie for anyone who wants to start. Start there. It only goes downhill. Go nice. ahead. Nice. <laughs> Hey, uh, does your uh, does your comic book collection? You have a website people can go to to check it out. Uh, you know, it's pretty much just uh, uh, you know what. Go to your local comic book store. Nice. That oh, I would love be awesome. And, and support your local comic book store. There's a number of great stores in Iowa. Um, you can get uh, Skyward in Trade Collections. Shadecraft comes out at the end of each month. Um, support your local businesses. Awesome. Love it. Yep. Love it. Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been fantastic to have you on the show. Um, I'm just happy we found another person who's a member of the Fucker Carlson fan. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Love yeah. it. Monster. Hey. <laughs> well, hey, my best to you and your family, and, and let's keep in touch online and so on, social media and so on. Okay? I would love to. And again, I, I really do mean it, guys. Like, I love what you're doing, and I appreciate it. Thanks. It's a great thing. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. All right. And that wraps up this episode of Three Rural White Guys. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Thank you to our listeners for sharing this time with us. And we hope you can join us again next week. <laughs> <laughs>